Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Christian Kotzulriksen, fellow for the uh, for the Middle East at the Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Christian's written extensively on the Gulf, on Gulf politics, security, economics. The GCC, the Emirates. Um, there, are, in fact, there are very few things in the Gulf that you've not written about, Christian. So it's a real delight to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Simon. It's great to be uh, with you. It's really exciting, Christian. Um, I mean, I first met you probably about a decade ago, I think now. So it's it's really exciting to to talk to you about your work and how it's been progressing since that point because i think when i first met you you'd um you just finished off your your phd which i believe was in history is that correct yes i did a phd in british military and imperial history and i looked at the british campaigns in iraq and palestine during the first world war and how the british moved huge armies around with very few logistical supports uh, to do so. They had to bring in everything they did and build roads to railways and conscript huge numbers of local workers, which led to a backlash after the war as British methods of imperial control became much more visible. So that was the basis of my initial work in the Middle East. And then after that, I got a job in a small think tank in London called the Gulf Centre for Strategic Studies, which works very closely with uh, Bahrain, and I started working on the Gulf, and that was in 2006. Amazing. So is that what is that what prompted the shift then from the the more historical side to the more more political side of things? Uh, very much so. It was the fact that I got a job in a think tank at the <laughs> right. time that the Iraq War was raging, sure. and I would write daily analysis of uh, the impact of the war on wider regional politics. The positioning of the Gulf states in how to uh, address some of the issues um, provoked by the fallout of the war in Iraq. And uh, over time, I just gradually became more immersed in the politics of the Gulf. And so in 2008, I moved to the London School of Economics and sort of re-entered the academic uh, sphere. Amazing. And since then, I think you've, you've done a really interesting role of sort of having a foot in both the, the policy world and then also in the academic world. And and that's something that I'd like to, to touch on over the course of this podcast, if I may, just trying to understand how you how you juggle those two very different types of, of roles with their very different responsibilities. But Christian, let's go back to, to pre, um, pre-PhD for a minute, if I may. What was it that, that drew you into to looking at the British involvement in Iraq and the sort of the formative stage? of the Iraqi state in the World War One period? Well, it was quite understudied, and this was just before 9-11 when I was beginning to think about the, uh, the, the topic. And, of course, after 9-11 and after the war in Iraq, it began to be quite, uh, quite relevant. There would be times where I would spend a day at the National Archive at Kew uh, looking through British documents from the 1914-18 period and reading about very similar family names and places of hotspots that I would go home and listen to on the news that evening. And so I, it was quite understudied 
in the early 2000s, and it was clearly a topic of great interest of how Britain effectively became responsible for creating the modern Iraqi state without necessarily having a strategic vision at the beginning for what they wanted to achieve. It just happened under the pressures of war. Right, yeah. So that was quite interesting for me. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Were you were you always a historian? Was that your 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 undergraduate and initial postgraduate training? Well, I became interested in the Middle East because it was a comparatively understudied part of the world in terms of the First World War, and I think over time I moved away from my initial interest in British history and into the ways in which Britain had fought the two world wars, but especially the First World War, without necessarily having strategic grand visions for what they would do after the war, but in which, of course, the military effort required to uh, secure victory in what effectively were quite peripheral campaigns led to a series of decisions that had momentous and lasting consequences, both both in Iraq and in Palestine, and of course also in other parts of Britain's more informal empire in the Middle East, which we we continue to see today. And so that's really what piqued my interest in, in the Middle East and in Britain's role in uh, creating and shaping some of the challenges that we still kind of grapple with today. And that that's really interesting. And, and I guess from that, we can easily see the segue from that that historical discussion to to understanding your your interest in the more contemporary political side of things but even in the the more contemporary work that you do there's a very clear historical element i would say in in what it is that you're doing how do you think history has helped you in in your work well i think it's absolutely critical to have a historical understanding of the forces that have shaped the present conditions in in any society, especially in the areas like the Middle East or in parts of Eastern Europe, for example, where history is still with us in very powerful ways. And uh, for example, I grew up in Greece, and in Greece, you will still people talk, you still hear people talk about uh, 1453 and the fall of Constantinople. It happened last week. The same thing <laughs> yeah. in the Middle East, and you'll hear people talk about the Balfour Declaration again, as if it's something contemporary, because for many people, it is something that you still live with the with the consequences. So I think uh, having historical perspective is extremely important. And also in terms of just working in the Gulf, some of the the histories of the Gulf were absolutely fascinating. But until about ten years ago, they were comparatively um, under understudied. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that that your work does so well in in bringing bringing to light a lot of these not necessarily ignored but undertold histories of of state formation and and political development which is absolutely fascinating from um, from the Qataris to the Emiratis and and elsewhere that you've worked on so just going back to your um your your slightly earlier career the the PhD later became a book that was published with Hearst is that correct the PhD initially became a book that came out with Palgrave. Oh, Palgrave, sorry. Which was a based on the thesis. It was on you know, the logistics and politics of the British campaigns in the Middle East. The the book with Hearst came out in 2014, and that was a, 
a general history of the world, First World War in the Middle East. And of course, that was also designed to uh, to come out uh, the centenary at the start of the war. Yeah. Um, so that came out a couple of years later. Um, and I suppose it's a reflection of the wider public interest in the First World War than in the Gulf. That that book on the First World War has sold more than all my other books combined. Oh, right. Interesting. So what is it about the, the First World War in the Middle East that, that makes it resonate so much, do you think? Well, I think because the legacy of the war, the decisions that were taken, often at short notice and without necessarily wide consultation with other people, continue to reverberate across the century. And even when you, know, you have shorthand references to Sykes-Picot and reshaping the Middle East, which aren't necessarily true. I mean, Sykes-Picot agreement was dead within a year. Yeah. It was superseded by 1919. But you still have that shorthand. And of course, when, for example, Daesh came to power in 2014, and you saw that video of the Daesh fighters removing the Iraq-Syria border post, you know, they proclaimed that they were doing away with sex pico And so it continues to, to resonate in a way that, for example, for us in the UK or in Europe, the war is a series of memories. Now there are no, last, no, no kind of surviving veterans left, you know, yeah. very few people who even knew the veterans when they were growing up. It's a series of memories, but it's not the case in the Middle East. It still has consequences that are felt in political um, power structures to this day. Sure. I mean, you've, you've raised Sykes-Picot, and I think that's a really important point. Just for, for people who aren't necessarily aware of, of why it's, it's so often raised as a... Uh, uh, as a key key issue in in the 20th century history of the Middle East, but but why it's also so inappropriate to use that? Can you just shed a bit of light on it, please? Well, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was signed in 20, in 1916, and uh, it kind of became a synonymous with the so-called carve-up of the Middle East by British and French imperial interests. Um, there was also a Russian element to Sykes-Picot, which is very rarely discussed. And, uh, yeah. and by 1917, 1918, you know, conditions had changed sufficiently that uh, the Sykes-Picot agreement was already gathering dust. Um, you know, Russia left the war after the revolution of 1917. And by 1918, Woodrow Wilson in the U.S. was proclaiming the, the right of national self-determination, and British and French officials realized that they had to acknowledged that this was the shift in the times and that they could no longer just base decisions on the rights of annexation. Sure. And so you had the Anglo-French declaration in 1918 promising self-determination to certain Arab lands, which were never entirely made clear. And then after the war, you had huge backlash against British control in Iraq in 1920, the Great Iraqi Revolt. You had in... Palestine, you had uprisings, you had in Egypt a major backlash against British control in 1919. And so by the time the so-called modern Middle Eastern map came together in 1920, 21, 22, and then in 23 with the final peace treaty with the Turkish or the Ottoman Empire, you know, the, the sort of prevailing conditions were very, very different from the 
notion of two men sitting together plotting to carve up an yeah. entire region. And what I find fascinating about it is, and, and this whole narrative of, of the sort of pernicious legacy of Sykes, because that Sykes himself said that the agreement was consigned to the diplomatic lumber room. He himself said it was dead, right? Yeah, and I think it just became a very useful two or three word shorthand for sort of the, you know, the sort of impact of Western colonialism sure, in, in, yeah. in the Middle East. You know, it became a very useful uh, label to sort of attach to a much wider and more complex set of issues. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's easy to see why that would be the case, I guess. But moving beyond the the, the First World War and its aftermath, you you then turn to to do some really fascinating work looking at, I guess, state formation and state building. Is that what was what was driving that move and that decision to start looking in that type of direction? Well. Um moving towards the Gulf, and I realized that uh, a lot of the issues that we look at in the Gulf these days have roots going back many decades and generations, and that without a proper understanding of the political economy of the Gulf states, how they developed, and of also some of the signposts along the way, and how things could be quite different had things gone differently in the 1950s and 60s, you know, we can't have a proper understanding of some of the challenges that we face today. And, you know, there are certain turning points where, you know, the history of the modern Gulf states could have been quite different. Um, and they're also quite a unique category of their own in the sense that they emerged from the sort of British protected status as a, not as a coherent necessarily, but as a fairly distinct group of small states in the international arena, which lacks a lot of the revolutionary fervor of many of the other states that became independent. Although that was also partly because of the successful top-down political control inherited from the British, which masked a lot of the facts that, you know, you had a lot of Arab nationalist uh, sympathy and political mobilization in some of the Gulf states in the 1950s and 60s. There were hotbeds of uh, political discussion that over time have gradually faded in view. So the notion that there was no politics in the Gulf, you know, is, is, is quite wrong. And others have written much more eloquently on that than I have. But it's, it's, it's a fascinating time period to look at. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, what, what sort of role did the British play, would you say, then? I mean, we know that, that there was this decision to, to withdraw from east of Suez. And that had a, a seismic impact on the formation of the, the, the modern Gulf states as we know them, if you will. But but before that, you're right to say that, I think, you're right to say that there was a, a real sense of, of politics taking place. But what was the role of the British in that time? Well, the British wanted to maintain access to oil supplies as, as after the discovery and extraction of oil. And before that, the importance of the strategic uh, route to India, which was the initial British sort of justification for getting into the Gulf in the first place in the 19th century and eradicating what they would call maritime piracy, which is heavily contested in the region. So there were a whole set of macro strategic interests that the British claimed to be seeking to protect and they would, or they would nominate you know, the leading sheikh from the leading family to protect or to sort of be their local partner on the somewhat 
credulous notion that the British wouldn't intervene in domestic issues, which of course they did repeatedly, especially in Bahrain, which is also the epicenter of Britain's formal political position in the Gulf. I mean, you saw in 1938, for example, you saw a movement to create a council in Kuwait, which, once it was created, proceeded to pass a constitution that took for itself for pretty much all the powers from the ruler. It was an incredible document for its time. And that had an immediate knock-on effect. You had similar petitions in Dubai and in Bahrain. And the British got concerned, for example, that their carefully constructed kind of system of, of local supporters and local allies was about to crumble in the face of not popular but political demands. And so, for example, in 1938-39, you had the British acquiescing as the rulers closed down these demands because, for the British point of view, it's better to have a, a system of local allies without having the pressures of demands of political issues from below threatening that, 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 that those relationships and those treaties. And I guess we, we still see the legacy of that to this day, um, the legacy of those, those alliance-building processes. Yes, very much so. And I mean, you've also had the other constant in Gulf politics, which is the alliance on an external security guarantee initially from the British and then since, 19, well, since the 1980s from, from the United States. Um, and the other interesting period in the Gulf is the 1970s because, as you said, the British announced in 1968 they were going to be withdrawing from all posts east of Suez, which was completed in November 1971. You had the Carter Doctrine in 1980 proclaiming that any, the U.S. regards any threat to the Gulf as a threat to the U.S. security interest. But it was only really the late 1980s, 1987, 88, that the U.S. begins to kind of return in force to the Gulf. And you have a kind of a 10, 15-year period in between when the Gulf states didn't really think they had a security guarantee and they were vulnerable. And in this period, you had Iran, for example, seizing the three islands from the UAE. You had Ba'athist cells popping up in Bahrain and parts of the UAE. You had the, of course, the, the war in Yemen. The, uh, the I mean, so the war, the Dofa rebellion in Oman, supported by the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, and you had a lot of pressure on the Gulf states as they were just starting out as independent states. That British officials, for example, weren't sure they would make it, and so you had that fascinating interregnum between the two periods of external support which I think is why also some of the Gulf rulers in the last few years were so concerned about the Obama administration, seeing that they couldn't necessarily trust the U.S. all over again, having perhaps longer memories of what had happened in 1971 when the British had left. And in, in 1971, for example, the, you know, the rulers of Dubai and Abu Dhabi offered to underwrite the costs of Britain continuing to stay. Yeah. But um, but that didn't happen, and they were on their own for a number of years. And that has had a, a powerful legacy. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, these are all themes that, that come out in your work, albeit in, in slightly different contexts, slightly different ways. But it's it's fascinating to see you trace these these processes, these issues in the, the different national contexts, be it um, Qatar or, or the Emirates or, or regionally in the, the stuff that you've done on the 
insecurity and the gulf, if you will. And and for people who aren't aware of, of how all these themes come together, I think your work, Christian, does a wonderful job of, of bringing these, these historical processes up to, to date and to life in the, the current manifestation of political life across the Gulf and, and to understand them, to understand why, as you say, to understand why there was this frustration at, at the Obama administration. You have to go back to, to history to look at what happened when the British left. And I think that's the, the real value of your work. That's where it really finds traction, this ability to locate it within broader historical narratives. So I, I really urge anyone who's not done this to, uh, to really take some time and, and read your stuff. But Christian, we're, we're moving swiftly through your, your academic career, but I want to spend a little bit of time, if I may, just on the, the other side of your, um, your career, which is the, the policy side of things. And you, you've done a great deal of work in the sort of the, the public engagement camp and, and the policy world more broadly. How do you find that as, an, as someone who was trained as an academic? What, what sort of experience have you had working in that, that world? Well, I think it helps that the, the work I do on the Gulf is obviously very policy relevant. And so you know, there's a natural bridge there. And the fact that over the past decade or so, you know, the relevance of the Gulf has become more important, not less important. So there's an immediate demand for the sort of expertise that one has. Um, that said, a lot, there is a very different method of, of sort of thinking through policy work. You need to work quickly and you need to be, in many ways, you need to kind of you need to drop the qualifications and the sort of qualified statements that you might expect to make in an academic work, the sort of casting it within a wider context and a, a notion that you know, this is the main argument, but there are others that could have been made. And in, in a policy piece, you need to be short and succinct and you need to get straight to the point, you know, the bottom line up front approach and the the people that would read your work often wouldn't be able to maybe give more than 5, 10, 15 minutes to it. You, know, you have to be short. You have yeah. to put a large amount of complex information down in one or two pages. And so there's a very different set of skills, I think, that not everybody can grasp, but I think it's very important and very useful to be able to do so. And, of course, there's a different time frame as well. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm currently writing a book. It's taking me more than a year uh, some of the other books I've written took two to three years to write yeah in a policy world you have to think on your feet and you have to think very quickly and so, so there were very different sets of issues that you have to to engage with yeah of course and this is the book on on the Qatar crisis is that right well the current one I'm writing is on the Qatar crisis and yeah I've been doing that for almost about a year now right um the previous two books both took about two years to write, and that were they were the UAE power politics and policy making, and before that the Gulf and international political economy. You know, and these books take a long time. You have time to think about them and frame them, and in the policy world, you often have a deadline which may 
maybe a, a day or two away or you're in <laughs> yeah. the middle of a meeting with officials for example and something comes up and you have to uh, you have to think of a response pretty much straight away that sounds uh, sounds credible to very busy people that also may not have as much a grasp of the facts that one may have sure. but who still need to be updated and informed yeah of course I mean, I've got one last question if I may because I'm conscious we've taken up a great deal of your time but I think this is a particularly important question in light of, of what a number of us working on the Gulf are, are facing. I mean, how do you how do you negotiate the the challenges of doing work on an incredibly complex region with with a lot of really sensitive issues that create a a really difficult environment for for scholars for researchers. Well, it's becoming increasingly difficult, and that's a problem I think all of us in the field of Gulf and even Middle Eastern studies more widely are going to have to face. I'm mean, thinking also of colleagues who work on Turkey, for example, or on Egypt, and yeah. uh, the sort of safe spaces where it's permissible to do research in in the region are, are shrinking and becoming more narrow. And uh, in the Gulf, for example, I am impacted by the fact that in 2015, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the six Gulf states unified their security blacklists, which meant that uh, for some of us who were on one of the blacklists, we're now on them all. Yeah. And access has become a problem. Now, part of the side effects of the Qatar issue has been that the security list is no longer fully enforced across the GCC. Um, but there was no guarantee that would happen. It's becoming so access is becoming an issue. The increasing visibility of academics who work on the Gulf is another challenge because we are asked to give our expertise. We are asked to write op-eds, for example, online commentaries, which are much easier to trace, much easier for a deep data mining government with interest in looking to see who's writing about what to to follow. In the old days, for example, one might write a, a book or a journal article which would disappear into university library mm. and uh, not necessarily have an impact on a ministry of information. These days, it's much easier, I think, to uh, to to access the output of scholars, and I think also the pressures on scholars to become more impactful to engage, as you've said, and to have an impact in the real world. You know, these are the pressures we all face from university administrators. And so it's pushing many of us to to have to become more active in the public sphere anyway, regardless of whether it's wise or not. And then, of course, there are the, the, the dangers that people face. The in fact, that several of my colleagues were arrested last year and detained in one in the UAE, one in Turkey, one in Egypt for, for months at a time, and in one case, quite badly mistreated. Yeah. Um, then, of course, there are the people in the Gulf who take risks by talking to people. Um, we mustn't forget that the main challenge is for scholars and students actually in the region. They're the ones who have to deal with the consequences should they do something that the authorities decide are... It's not permissible. They will have families and friends who could be targeted and vulnerable. So it's it's becoming increasingly difficult. There are ways around it. There are encrypted communications, there's Skype. You no longer have to physically be in a country to do field work on it. To some extent, you can do interviews, although there's no, um, there's no substitute for actually spending time in a country or a region, spending time on the ground. You pick up so much just... Yeah not just through formal interviews, but just by being observant. Yeah. 
But I think in, in the Gulf especially, there will be a generation of scholars and students who now will face a choice between maintaining access and openly authoring articles. And I know several PhD students, for example, who finished their PhDs and uh, are holding off publishing some of them because they know that they have a chance to go back and do more work. And once they begin to publish, that could be jeopardized. So you have a choice. You publish and you take the consequences or you face the risk. Sure. And that's not a good situation to be in. And I think it's been getting steadily worse. And in the Gulf's case, the the academic the threshold of academic interest has been rising so rapidly, in part because of Gulf funding for universities across the world. But the threshold for tolerance of criticism has been decreasing. And so that's created a real problem, I think, for, for those of us who work in and on on the region. Yeah, I, I fear you're right. I think it's a very delicate time for for us working on the region, but also, as you say, for the, for people in the region doing academic work more broadly. But Christian, we've we've taken up a great deal of your time, and uh, I just want to say thank you so much for for spending it with us and for for talking through your your work and sharing your your thoughts and reflections with us. It's been absolutely fascinating having you on the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to to reading the next book when it comes out. <laughs> Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Christian. Until next time. Okay, cheers.